All right, very good. Thank you uh, for joining me in that time of prayer. I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, as I just mentioned, to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3. Over the next several weeks, my expectation, my hope, depending on how things go, is that we'll be spending some time walking through um, Proverbs, various, various chunks of Proverbs chapter 3. And um, in doing so, I think it will be very beneficial to us. Proverbs 3 is one of those very special passages of Scripture. Um, many people know it. Many people love it. Many people have uh, at least singular verses within the scope of Proverbs 3 memorized. Particularly, uh, we think of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We'll be talking more about that, I would expect, uh, next Sunday. Also, um, Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even the, uh, as a father, the son in whom he is well pleased. And we think of that one as well, which we'll Lord willing, be talking about um, in, a, in the future days as well. And as we consider these points of instruction, we find here uh, Hebrew poetry, we'll be talking about that on Tuesday nights here coming up soon, uh, kind of two verse chunks of instruction. And those two verse chunks really begin uh, in, in verses 1 and 2. Um, the Bible says this in Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, My son, forget not my law. But let thine heart keep my commandments, for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. And this is an instruction, but it is also an exhortation to listen to instruction. And so the instructions proper um, kind of begin in verses 3 and 4. And that two-verse chunk is the two-verse chunk that I would like to speak about just for a few minutes together this evening. So um, the, the proverb here begins with this exhortation to not forget not forget the law to keep the commandments of one's father. Why? Because length of days and long life and peace will they add to you. So the exhortations within the scope of this chapter are intended to bring about length of days, long life, and peace. Now this is not the kind of promise whereby you say, okay, if I do these things, I'm going to live to be 60 or 70 or 80 or 90. We can't set a, a number on this thing, nor is it saying that explicitly. Uh, we've seen any number of good, godly men, Jesus Christ included, who died uh, relatively young, right? And the fact that they died relatively young is not a statement as to whether or not they were godly or whether or not they kept these things. That is not how Proverbs work. Proverbs are generalized. Uh, Proverbs are, as they say, they are proverbial, right? So the idea is that all things being equal, the principles that are laid out within the Proverbs, specifically the principles that we'll see laid out here as they are undergirded by this, this exhortation, these principles that, that undergird this are principles by which, effectively, if we may put it this way, we are able to align with that which brings about success. So we've talked about this before, but the Bible in many ways, and specifically Proverbs in, in, in a manner of speaking, is like life's user manual. See, the, when, when a manufacturer designs a product, they design a product and then they they also attach with that product a user manual. So I have a, a, a product right here uh, that I was fiddling with today. I had written out my notes on this product and it's a tablet, um, it's like a writing tablet of sorts and it's electronic and all it does is, is uh, input text, has no actual screen on it or anything of the sort. And then I was trying to get this, this um, uh, my notes off of this writing tablet and I was having a really hard time doing so. I, 
I couldn't, I knew there was a way, but I could not figure out how. And I was, is there a combination of buttons? I just forgot. I hadn't used it for printing in, in some time. And so I was kind of uh, at a loss. And so what did I do? I Googled the name of the writing tablet and I found it and I went to the website and I clicked on online manuals and I read through the manual and the manual informed me as to how I could get that page printed out so that I can read the things that I had been thinking through and contemplating throughout the weeks. That is a user manual, right? And I went to the manual to understand how the product works because the product is best understood by the people that created it. And thus by going to the person that created it and reading the manual, now I could use it without, I can figure it out for myself. I can use it in ways that the manufacturer did not expect or did not intend. But if I want to get the best results, I'm going to use it as it was intended by the manufacturer. And that is what it's designed to do. And in using it the way it's designed to do, I'm going to see the best results. So this is our user manual. As such, if I want to understand the world as it exists, and I want to understand how all things being equal to function properly in this world, I go to the user manual. Now this has its limitations, right? Like I said, many a godly person has died young. Things like illness, things like um, uh, evil within this world, these things uh, cut short. Otherwise, um, ex uh, otherwise normal expectations. But all things being equal, what this proverb exhorts is that if you do these things, you'll find a measure of length of days, long life, and success. And so the one that we're going to consider this evening, that we're going to focus on this evening, is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And in these verses we read this, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck, write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. So the exhortation is let not mercy and truth forsake thee. I'm going to come back to this because that's the primary focus of our time together is this concept of mercy and truth. But notice what he says to do with it. He says that, that we are to bind them about our neck or write them upon the table of our heart. Uh, these are two metaphors. They're two illusions that we see. They're poetic in nature, right? We are not uh, interpreting literally here. Uh, when we interpret the Bible, there are, are generally five principles that we, that we, we cling to. Literal, grammatical, uh, contextual, historical, and uh, literal, grammatical, contextual, historical. I'm missing one. Anyway, um, the one that I was wanting to focus on was literal anyway, so I think we're okay there. Uh, when, we, when, when we talk about interpreting the Bible literally, that doesn't mean that every single thing we're taking as literally as possible. We're not saying there, okay, I need to somehow write these commandments and bind them about my neck. I need to somehow write these commandments and then I need to find, I need to create a table for my heart and I need to write them on the table of my heart. That would be a tablet type idea, right? Um, that, that is not absolutely not what's being spoken of here, right? Uh, even to, to some degree, we see that with the Jews and their phylacteries, right? They actually have the law of God written and put upon their head, but that's not the intent of, um, um, of what God was saying here. These are metaphors in order to express just how closely we are to bring them. That like a necklace that we would bind about our neck so that everywhere that we go, it goes with us. Or, or uh, like, 
the idea of, of writing something on a tablet or writing something on a parchment in order that it is permanent, in order that it is there, in order that, that, that it is seen and seeable and doable and readable, that's the idea, that, that we're writing it upon our hearts so that it doesn't go away. We're writing it upon our hearts so that it has a physical presence with us. We're binding it about our neck so that we carry it with us everywhere we go. And that which we are called to carry with us, that which we are called to bind with us, is mercy and truth. And when I think of this idea of mercy and truth, we've defined these terms before. Mercy is not being given something that I deserve, and that would be as it relates to mercy in relation to something negative, right? That I deserve something negative, I deserve something bad, I deserve something evil, and not in the sense of wickedness, but just in the sense of bad. And when I am given mercy, that means that I am not given what I deserve. So uh, if my child does something and they do something that, that was um, wrong or disobedient or unkind or whatever it might be, uh, typically speaking, they are going to receive the natural consequence for that. But there, is a, uh, there are various times where, for one reason or another, I might see fit to show them mercy, that though they had done what was necessary to earn or to deserve some le level of censure, yet I am choosing by my discretion not to do so, but rather to uh, hand out a measure of mercy, not being given what I deserve, that is mercy. And then we have truth. And truth is that which conforms to an effective reality, right? Um, the idea that there is, there is reality, there is an objective reality. Whether or not I am, I am willing to acknowledge that reality doesn't change the reality of the situation. Uh, I have in front of me a Bible. I have in front of me a piece of paper. They are sitting on a brown table. And whether or not I decide to say that they're sitting on top, that, that, that my, my Bible and my paper are hovering in the air, it doesn't change the fact that they're sitting on a brown table. If I said, no, they're actually sitting on a green table, it doesn't change the fact that they're sitting on a brown table table. Reality is objective, and whether I acknowledge it or not, it doesn't change the fact that reality is objective. So truth, truth is that which conforms to an objective reality. Now we've talked before about the various levels of truth. Uh, today people are, are very intent on speaking their truth, and the idea of speaking their truth is really just their opinion, right? That they are going to say that which they believe, or that which they think, or that which they want to be true, and so that is their truth. But that's not truth, that's just opinion. That's really all it is. Um, truth is something that conforms to an objective reality. And so the, the, pro, the, the uh, writer of Proverbs here, presumably Solomon, says, bind around your neck, write on the table of your heart, these two things, mercy and truth. And this is very, very important, that these be brought together, because quite often they're not put together. All around us within society, we see a very, very strong push today for this concept of mercy, uh, the idea of empathy, that we are to uh, cater to everyone's feelings, uh, that, that we are to uh, bend ourselves, revolve ourselves around um, the, the perception of others, so that if a person decides that, that he 
is actually a she, that in order to not hurt the feelings of the he, we have to also pretend with him that he's a she. Or any number of other delusional statements as it relates to the concepts surrounding as it relates to the concepts surrounding their their desire and our need to show them mercy or to be empathetic or to be kind or or to help them feel better about themselves this goes all the way back to uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago in participation trophies, the idea that it hurts children's feelings if they lose, and so nobody's going to get a trophy for winning. We're just going to go out there. We're all going to play. No one's going to win. No one's going to lose. Everyone gets a trophy at the end, and everyone feels good about themselves. It, it's, it is trying to hide from them reality, right, um, by uh, seeking to, to, to bring about a false reality, a false reality where um, there's no such thing as winners and losers. That's not true in life. Just as, just as the, the idea that a, a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man, this, this isn't true. It, it, it does not conform to an objective reality. And so mercy has been a big push today. This idea of mercy, this idea of empathy, this idea of, of um, uh, catering to one's feelings, being very uh, sensitive to feelings. And so we have that today and that at the expense of truth, right? So this is, if we want to call it this, it's not the direct uh, definition, but this is mercy without truth. This is, this is empathy uh, outside of reality. This is allowing a person to live a lie and confirming him in his lie or confirming her in their lie in order to not hurt their feelings. And, and we in Christian circles say, you're not helping anyone when you do that. And so we have that idea, but you know, it can go the other way as well. It is not uncommon, particularly among Christians uh, such as we, uh, who have a, a strong desire for truth to highlight or emphasize truth at the expense of mercy, cold, hard truth, the kind of smack a person in the face and say, look, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. This is true. And you just need to deal with it. You just need to suck it up, realize the way life works, and get on board. And this idea um, found oftentimes, as we said, among those uh, who do have a very high degree of appreciation for reality and an understanding of reality is one that you can drift into, where you're so sick of people um, living in a dream world, living in a fantasy land, where you're so sick of people uh, um, bending themselves or asking others to bend to their own misconception or misunderstanding of reality that you, you simply have no time for it. You, you're not interested in it. You're just going to take reality and you're going to slap them in the face with it. And that's just the way it's going to be. And yet Solomon writes here and he says, let not mercy and truth forsake thee. What he's calling us unto here is balance. We've talked a lot in our church about balance. You find that quite often, much of what the Bible is teaching is completely found within the scope of balance. You find that God is a balanced God, so much so that in the law, he said a false weight is an abomination unto him. That which is false, that which is... That, that, that which is, is not 
proper, that which does not accurately represent, is an abomination to him. And we're called not just to mercy, not just to truth, but mercy and truth. And as I read this passage, what immediately comes to mind is Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we draw what is effectively the motto of our, truth, of our church. You've seen our sign before in one form or another. It says Legacy Baptist Church, and then under it, it says the truth in love. The truth in love. And this comes from Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is has transitioned from, in chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, he is, is giving the theological reality of our standing in Christ, that we are holy and unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, that we in Christ, that we judicially, that we um, positionally are perfected in Him, that, that we have the earnest of the, the, the Spirit uh, who is with us, that, that we um, are accepted in God's sight that positionally all of the enmity against God has been abolished and we stand in the heavens uh, holy and unblameable and unreprovable. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, um, Paul transitions from the theological to the practical. The theological says this is who we are in Christ. The practical says therefore live this way. And the fact that you do or don't live that way does not necessarily um, uh, uh, threaten whether or not you are in Christ, right? It might indicate that you aren't in Christ if you if you are living in abject rebellion, but the doing and the don't is is an entirely different different idea from who you are in Christ and who you are positionally in Christ. And so you are this thing in Christ. This is your identity in Christ. You are holy. You are unblameable. You are uh, 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 an unreprovable in His sight. He is our peace. He hath broken down the partition, the middle wall of partition between us, and he has made us one, Jew and Gentile. We are all one in Christ. Uh, we are right with God. We have this relationship with him. All of that, all of those implications uh, made real in Christ alone, completely setting aside anything we have or have not done. That is Christ alone. But now what do we do with that? And that brings us to, to kind of that idea that we talked about in Romans chapter 6 this morning, right? What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein, right? If we are dead to sin, if we are no longer under sin, if we are buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life, well then let's live that way. Live according to your identity. And that's the idea here in Ephesians chapter 4 and then through 5 and 6. Is This is who you are in Christ, so live it. Live this way. And, and so... Verse 1 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 4, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the call is to walk worthy of the vocation. You already have the vocation. You're already in Christ. Now walk worthy of it. That's the call. We skip to verse 11. And in verse 11, the Bible tells us this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
And so we see this idea that Paul speaks of the church here, and he says that God gave unto the church first apostles and prophets. Now, he said earlier in the book of Ephesians that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, and then the apostles and prophets, that would be the word of God, forms the foundation for the church. That's why we don't have apostles and prophets anymore today. They were the foundation of the church. They are not the structure of the church. So the, corner, the chief cornerstone, that is Christ. Cut from that cornerstone are the apostles and the prophets. Everything in the word of God is cut to fit the word of God incarnate, that is Jesus Christ. And they all conform 100% one to another, laying a perfect and sturdy, a, a immovable foundation. And then built upon that is the church of Christ, thus given evangelists and pastors and teachers. Evangelists being the one who goes out, who is called to go out, who is effective and is given the, the, the effectiveness of going out and reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the pastor teacher. Uh, it says pastors and teachers here, but in the Greek as well as here in the King James, uh, notice that they are the same office. You see in that verse, if you're looking, you have apostles, semicolon, some, comma, prophets, semicolon, some, comma, evangelists, semicolon, and some, comma, pastors and teachers, semicolon. You notice there's not a semicolon between pastors and teachers. You notice there's not another some, comma, between pastor and teacher. That's because within the Greek, as within the English here in the King James, they are one office. So the pastor-teacher is one office. And so God gave apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church, and then he gave evangelists, those that go out and win, win people to Christ, and then pastor-teachers, those who, once people are one to Christ, bring them in and teach them and evangelize, uh, not, not evangelize them, disciple them. So you have the evangelist and you have the discipler. And while we're all called to do both evangelism and discipleship, there are some that are gifted with one more than another. Your pastor is very much so a pastor teacher, um, and yet I do go out and I, I evangelize. Then there are others who are very much evangelists, even though they are capable of doing the teacher or the pastor teacher role. And the point of this is to perfect the saints for the work of the ministry, to bring, into, to, to bring you into a perfection, not sinlessness, but an idea of a well-roundedness, or as our definition at Legacy typically is for perfect, finished or complete, having all that is necessary for its nature and kind. And that perfection is intended to bring about in you the capacity to do the work of the ministry and then to edify the body of Christ so that we can do the work of reaching others and then building one another up in love. For how long? Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what uh, Paul had spoken of earlier in the book, the reality that we will stand before him blameless. Paul says that we are going to, as a church, continue this work. We're going to continue learning. We're going to continue growing. We're going to continue building one another up. We're going to continue building the church until we all come into the fullness of Christ. That's when we all stand in glory together as one glorious church. Won't that be a good day? And that day is coming, and that's the day unto which we seek. Why? Why? Why keep doing this until the day of Christ? Verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning cra and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body, fitly framed together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This is the prescription of the church. We are building one another up. We are edifying. We are learning so that we are not deceived, so that we are not tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but rather, but rather, we speak the truth in love. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Solomon said, mercy and truth, the truth in love. This is our charge. This is our calling one to another. This is our calling to the world that is beyond our walls, that we would speak the truth in love, that the church may grow into Christ, that others may come to know Christ. We are a church that loves truth. Truth is central to what we are doing here. We recognize how important, how essential truth is, that if we don't have this as our anchor, we will drift, we will float away. That if, if, if the Bible is not our compass, we will not know what direction we are going. That we need the light and that the truth of God gives light. Psalm 119 tells us that the word of God Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so we seek unto the word of God to be that lamp, to be that light. And yet we need to remember that the call to speak truth is a call to speak it in love. That we would bind about our neck mercy and truth. That we would write upon the table of our heart mercy and truth. Not just truth. And certainly not just mercy, not just the idea of love that is undirected. Love that is undirected becomes wild, becomes uncontrollable, and becomes absolutely uh, ineffective at the purpose unto which love is directed. The truth must be the guiding light of our love, or else we simply don't know how to love. The world around us thinks they are loving people by, quote, accepting people just as they are, bar none, confirming people in their thoughts and in their desires and in their, I mean, unless those are Christian thoughts, of course, but confirming anyone but a Christian in his thoughts and in his desires, right? They say, that's love, because what I'm doing is I'm making a person feel good. I'm affirming them, but that's not love, is it? And this, this, this wild, reckless, undirected love is doing so much damage. Whereas what a person needs is to have someone come aside them in love and understand them, love them, accept them for who they are, but not tell them that everything's okay, but direct them unto what God has designed them and made them to be. We talked before about evangelism. It's not love. For me to let a person live in darkness without telling them that they're in darkness. Just like it's not love if I let my wife walk out of the house with broccoli in her teeth and, and uh, with, with uh, uh, some, something stuck in her hair. And, and, and if I saw that and I said, okay, honey, you know, enjoy your, your shopping trip, uh, that would not be loving. Well, I don't want to embarrass her. Yeah, but better, better to let her know now than when she gets to the store. And someone else has to let her know or not let her know. And then she's really embarrassed, right? 
truth has to be, or love has to be directed by something. And that direction must come from that thing which is connected to objective reality. And the thing which is connected to objective reality is truth. And yet, if I'm harsh and cold and unfeeling, if my wife is having a particularly emotionally sensitive time, and she's having a tough day, and it's been difficult, and I know what she's going through, and she's tired, or whatever the case may be, and I just come up and I decide to tell her all the things that I didn't like about what she did this week. It would not be, it would not be loving. It might be true, but it would not be compelled by that thing called love, whereas I could say, uh, maybe I should let her get a little extra sleep first. Maybe I should bring her to a place of preparation, or maybe I should only tackle these things one at a time. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful that God does this with us? See, this is not without precedent. It's not as if God is calling us to do something he doesn't do himself. We often, uh, we don't, the, uh, the world often portrays God as truth without love or love without truth as well. So love is this all, uh, God is this all accepting God who doesn't care what you do or whatnot as long as, uh, as, long as um, you think you're pretty good because, quote, God knows my heart. And that's that God who is, quote, all love to the expense of himself. And then you have the God of truth, and this is the lightning bolt God, right? This is the God where everything that I do that's wrong, God's just sitting in the heavens waiting to destroy me. He's just sitting in the heavens seeking unto the thing that I do wrong. And so when you have a cold or when you're having a bad day or when things go wrong, you say, God, what did I do? Oh man, I must have really angered God because of this, because of that. And, and you try to connect every bad thing in your life to God being angry at you. And that idea uh, comes from, from a misunderstanding of God as it relates to mercy, as it relates to love. But what is God? God's a very loving God, and yet never at the expense of truth. God will tell us what we need to know, but aren't you thankful he doesn't dump it all on us at once? Have you ever had a situation where um, you've been working on something and working on something, and then you finally learned a lesson? And once you've learned that lesson, you say, ah, oh, finally, I get it, and you move on. And then there's another lesson waiting for you. And then you start to learn that lesson and you look back upon your life, two, three, four years, five years, and you say, wow, look at all the lessons I learned. And you recognize how much farther you've progressed in your Christian life because you dealt with this and then you dealt with that and then you dealt with that. First it was your anger, then it was your pride, then it was your selfishness, then it was your self-righteousness, then it was your greed. And one thing at a time, the Lord was dealing with them one right after another. Aren't you thankful he didn't just dump them all on your plate at once? Aren't you thankful God, when you got saved, didn't just say, well, now that you're a believer, now that you're a follower of Christ, now that you are, are called to devote yourself to truth, here's a list of, of, of 10,000 things that are wrong with you. Get them all done. I'll see you next week, and I expect the list to be cut in half. God didn't do that. God doesn't do that. God is careful. God is patient. God brings us along. And thank God that he's very long-suffering with us. God exemplifies the truth in love. And so we see this idea here that the truth in love is the means by which we grow one another, that we help one another stay connected, keep our bearings to objective reality, but we do it in a way that makes sense, we do it in a way that's understandable, we do it in a way that's patient, we do it in a way that is kind. And it's the same with the world around us. You've got friends, you've got neighbors, you've got loved ones who are in need of Christ. May I encourage you, Never, ever, ever compromise on the truth. Never step outside of the bounds of objective reality, but love them. The truth in love. 
But that doesn't mean that your method has to be brute force with this world. Some people might respond to that. That's fine. But as the old adage goes, and it has a measure of truth, not for everyone, but it does have a measure of truth. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. And there are any number of times where the credibility of your love for someone is a good part of what is going to bring about in them an understanding and an appreciation for the truth that is exemplified in your life and that is coming out of your mouth. And so verse 17 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So we don't live outside of truth, but we put on that new man. And that new man is formed, forged in righteousness and holiness. That new man is a renewal of the spirit of our minds that fundamentally alters our thought process, our direction, and our intention. And then with that in place, we forge ahead. With that in place, we live a testimony. And so Paul gives any number of replacement principles here. He says in verse 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to them that, that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearer. So this is the put off and put on principles. This is the putting on the new man. This is the rejecting of the old man. This is where we clothe ourselves in truth to the extent that we are thus able to reflect truth one to another. And then how? Verses 30 through 32. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We, we don't deliver any of these truths in wrath or anger or bitterness or evil speaking. That, that is not the context within which truth is best exemplified. It is not the best context to, exhi to exhibit truth to make fun of people. Have you ever sat under that kind of preaching where the preacher gets up and he just starts making fun of the, quote, opposition of the unbeliever? And he starts talking about, um, that, or, or, or even of other Christians, and he starts talking about their, their uh, standards, and he starts talking about their beliefs, and he starts talking about how they act, and he's, he, he's making fun of them, and he's belittling them, and he's... He's belittling our, our uh, leaders, or he's belittling our government, or he's belittling uh, the unbeliever. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's effective because it puts us in an us-versus-them mentality, and then it makes us uh, convinced that we are the right side, that we're the right ones, uh, that, that through this 
this idea of belittling the opposition, it, it number one, makes people feel as though they're right and that they're really right. And then number two, it, it's some sort of, it, it's, it's a sort of defense mechanism against the frustration of uh, those that are living in this ignorance that Paul speaks of here, that are blinded by the ignorance that is in their hearts. But may I just say this? It's not the most effective method of reaching because it, it contains elements of truth, maybe even the belittling, maybe even the razzing, maybe even uh, the elements of, uh, of, of, of unkindness of sorts. Maybe those things even have a truth to them, but it's not effective. It's not effective unto reaching them. It's not effective unto putting ourselves in a mindset by which to reach them. If I start seeing the unbeliever, if I start seeing the Christian that's not like me as the enemy, as the one who is constantly in the wrong, it is going to compromise my capacity to reach them, to love them, to care for them so much that I beg and plead on my knees, God, to reach their hearts. And so truth, a life of truth is unhypocritical and it is selfless and it is balanced and it is deliberate. This doesn't just come. This is something you have to forge within yourself and then to do it in a manner that is kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving. Because this is how Christ loved us. It is. And it's how we ought to love one another. It's how we ought to love the lost. And so, we see this idea. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thy heart. And what are the results? Verse 4. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Again, all things being equal. We know from, uh, from Romans chapter 1, we know from the testimony of Jesus Christ, we know from uh, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, we know from the Martyr's Mirror that uh, any number of people hate truth to the point of putting truth-tellers to death, killing the messenger, right? Humans are really good at imputing upon the messenger um, the, their hatred for the message. And yet, all things being equal, mercy and love, when combined, is the ideal formula to bring about favor and good understanding, both in God's sight and in man's. In God's sight, because this is the method unto which he's called us. In man's sight, because when people know you care, they do care more about what you know. That when our lives can manifest a genuine, the, the, the reality of truth, when our lives emanate truth, and yet people don't think that we think that they are our enemies, if you followed that, this is the most effective place for God's people to reach others. It's the same in church. If I come up to you and I say, hey, there's some truth that you need to hear, the extent to which you will be receptive to that truth. If, you're, if, if you are just an open book ready for truth, you may receive it from me though you don't know me from Adam. Or even though I hate you, if I'm telling you the truth, you'll take it. That would be best in the, in the sense of you're, you're receptive to truth. But it's a whole lot easier to receive truth from someone who loves you, isn't it? 
from someone who you know has your best interest in mind, from someone who has some uh, capital with you, can expend some of that capital to help you understand something that you may not want to understand. Truth is a lot easier for my children to receive from me and my wife than from a stranger or even from someone outside the family. You've experienced this perhaps at church before. My children have been doing something wrong and you've corrected them and they don't like that. Boy, they'd much rather receive that correction from mom and dad than from, from random church person. And we've worked with them on that because truth is truth regardless of who, whose mouth it comes out of. And yet, it's much easier to receive from the one that you know is your authority and the one that you, you trust to be doing what's best for you. And so this general proverbial formula, the call that if you want to have favor and good understanding both with God and man, then what you do is you don't forsake mercy and truth. Don't forsake the truth in love, but rather speaking the truth in love, let us build one another up and then let us reach out to a lost and dying world and win them for Christ.